Hello, and welcome to Where the Rubber Meets the Road podcast with Safe Ride for Kids. You know, driving is the most dangerous activity that we do every day, but we realize that your family has places to be and things to do. At Safe Ride for Kids, we help you arrive safely, and we do that by equipping you with innovative products and unbiased information from our team of certified safety experts. I'm Greg DeRocher, and today I'm the co-founder and CEO at Safe Ride for Kids. But my first career was as a firefighter paramedic, and that's where, unfortunately, I got to see firsthand the devastation that car crashes can have. That's also where I got started in injury prevention, uh, injury prevention education. Back in 2000, uh, I became a certified child passenger safety technician because, you know, a child's safety in the car is largely dependent upon their parents' choices, their caregivers' choices. I've been an instructor of that car seat curriculum, uh, certifying technicians since 2001. I'm Amy Dersher. I'm co-founder and creative director at Safe Ride for Kids. I became a, uh, car, a certified car seat technician back in 2004. I write most of the content for our website, and I'm a mother of three. Today, we're going to be talking about state laws versus best practice. If you didn't know, every state does have uh, a law on the books that regulates or mandates uh, car seat use for parents to caregivers, not just parents, uh, for people transporting children. And um, the reason for that is, you know, we're going to go into a little bit of the history of it, but, uh, you know, there weren't always car seats. You know, Amy and I are in our 40s, and when we were little car seats were just starting to be used broadly. Um, our parents and probably, you know, for me, my older siblings, they didn't have car seats weren't even a thing yet. I'm pretty sure I drove to from Michigan to Florida on my mom's lap in a bug. Yeah. I would imagine <laughs> so. You know, I'm the youngest of eight and I was lucky to even have a seat, much less a seat belt. And there were no car seats in our family. You know, it was not uncommon for me to be in the back of the van behind all of the rows of seats back in the cargo area. And there was usually uh, two or three of us back there because we were always transporting other kids and, and the, uh, you know, going to school or whatever. So those of us, you know, a, a common thing that we hear is, well, you know, we never had car seats when we were little and we all, and, you know, we all made it. And that's true those of us that survived are here to talk about it. But the reality is, is that um, car seat use was became um, regulated and mandated because the fatality rates were so high. And even today, uh, about the numbers vary, but roughly 50% of the children that are fatally injured in car crashes were not restrained in the car. I think the current number is 35%. Isn't that low? Yeah. So, you know, that's a huge, you know, one of the things that we teach in, in car seat class is that when you, when an occupant gets ejected from the vehicle, the probability, the statistical probability of being fatally injured is at least four times higher. So just by keeping people in the car, keeping occupants in the car, 
were increasing survivability. So tell us a little bit more about the history of specifically car seats. Well, car seats originally started um, just to kind of hold your child in place so they weren't going all over the car. Um, <laughs> so they weren't actually meant to... Uh, they weren't. They weren't meant to like for safety. Uh, they were just de- sometimes to lift the child up so they can see out the window. So it was kind of more like a booster seat kind of thing that hung over the front seat. <laughs> if you look at some of the images of those, uh, it was like a almost like a bouncy seat that hung on the vehicle seat back. <laughs> some of them even had little steering wheels so the kid could you know pretend that they were driving. Um, th- there were times when people were just putting their kid in like a burlap sack in the front seat, kind of just them in so they weren't just climbing all over the car. Uh, it wasn't until 1968 that car seats were starting to be designed with safety in mind, um, which is interesting because from 19, oh wait, sorry, not 68, 62, 1962. And then it was nine years until 1971 when NHTSA first started adopting um, federal standards for car seats. So that's, it was nine years between when they are first starting being designed for safety until standards were created. So innovation precedes regulation. Pretty much always. I can't think of a time when it doesn't. And then it took 17 years from the innovation and eight years from the regulations for there to be a first state law. And the first state law was in Tennessee. And then six years later, that was in 1979, Six years later, by 1985, all states, except for New Hampshire, had car seat law. Well, maybe um, New Hampshire has a car seat law now, but they do not have a seatbelt law. Oh, so they they mandate it for children, mm-hmm. but not for adults. Not for adults. It's the only state that does not have a seatbelt law, but they do have a car seat law. You know, and that kind of goes back to what I've said in our intro is, and it was really one of the driving factors that led me to get into car seats as you know, a, a primary focus for injury prevention. And that is that children that get killed in car crashes, they don't choose to not be properly restrained. They're not driving the car. They don't have any control over the, the circumstances that they find themselves in. And whether their parents were at fault in the car crash doesn't matter. Um, oftentimes in car crashes, you know, the, the people that get hurt aren't at fault. But the whole point of, of injury prevention and safety, especially in this context, is about understanding the risks and taking steps to mitigate those risks. You know, obviously, we can't eliminate all the risk in our lives. Um, but it's understanding where are the probabilities and taking steps to, to mitigate that and position yourself for the best possible outcome. Even with a kid in a properly installed, properly harnessed uh, child and a child restraint, there's still the very high possibility of getting injured. But what's, what we're trying to do is reduce the severity of those injuries and, and ideally you know, reduce the fatality rate in car crashes. So the whole thing is, is not necessarily that your child is going to be uninjured in a car crash. It's just that because we understand the laws of physics and 
probabilities of car crashes, etc. They've engineered the car seats to have the best possible outcome, given the amount of energy that we're trying to manage in a car crash. You know, that's why cars crumble the way they do now versus you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago when uh, cars were built much more sturdily um, to not, you know, they were, they were heavier duty. But what that meant is that crash energy was transferred to the occupants. Now what happens is the car crumbles and the occupants walk away. Hopefully. Hopefully, a lot of the time. There's always some crashes that are so severe they're they're kind of considered unsurvivable. Unsurvivable, absolutely. <clears throat> so, um, from a history perspective, um, one of the you know what Amy pointed out is that uh, innovation always precedes regulation. You know why would the why would the government institute a regulation on a product that doesn't exist yet? Right, that doesn't make any sense. So um, for what we're talking about here at Safe Drive for Kids is we talk a lot about safe driving during pregnancy. And, you know, the products that are on the market today, there are no safety regulations for that category of product. We're hoping that someday there will be. And we'd like to move towards that. And, you know, we're, we're looking for the right resources and, and people that can help us with that. Um, because that's a political process. You know, it, it's going to require a regulation uh, enacted by government. Uh, but that's a whole different topic. Um, so let's talk about why there's car seat laws. So we are already talking about how we're trying to reduce injury, reduce fatalities. Um, so to give you a quick statistic, um, about 794 children this was in 2017, and it changes every year. But so roughly, this is probably an average: 794 children ages 12 and younger died in car crashes. So, why is that relevant? You know, think about all of the other things that we account for in 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 trying to keep our children safe. You know, right now we're when we're recording this, we're in the early 20 or late 2020 in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, there's a lot of talk about kids and, and um, this, this disease and this, this virus. Um, We lose almost, you know, seven to 800 children every single year from car crashes it seems like the re- the reaction to these other things sometimes it gets out of proportion when it's looked at in the context of other issues i would love to see you know we lose about 35 to 40,000 adults in car crashes that's total occupants, I would say. Um, but that's every year. You know, when I got started in car seats, it was closer to 50,000 people every single year that were, you know, fatally injured, that lost their lives in car crashes. Yet, you know, we're lucky if we can get a, a, a speed limit reduced in a neighborhood. 
You know, there's a lot of things that take human life that could be um, more top of mind, we'll say. But I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> but that's why states have laws, because the states are trying to um, they're trying to change behavior by having a law. Uh, as one of my uh, trainers in the car seat world likes to say, you know, sometimes the best teacher is press hard five copies uh, at the side of the car when a, when a police officer is giving you a ticket for not having your child properly restrained. You know, that is sometimes what it takes for people to take it seriously that they need to properly restrain their children. So states are trying to change behavior by having laws. Having a punishment. Um, one thing that we should understand, though, is your state law should be considered the minimum standard because it, it usually is. Um, best practice is what you should be following. It's what's called what we consider the safest. Um, and state laws, they have to take into account what they feel like they can enforce and what they can feel like their constituents will accept. So they're usually a minimum standard. Um, and then there are some cases where the laws try to be really specific, which actually makes it technically illegal to practice best practice, what would be safest. Um, for instance, um, in Ohio, part of their law says children's ages four to eight years of age and less than four foot nine inches in height are required to be in a booster seat that meets FMVSS um, standards. Now, so, go ahead. No. <laughs> um, so basically what that's saying is that a child has to be in a booster seat, whereas a child who's four years old would be safer and would probably still fit in a five-point harness. But according to the law, they're required to be in a booster seat. So that's not allowing for best practice. There are a few states who try to make very specific uh, pieces of the law, which make it harder to practice um, best practice. I think that's not their intent. But yeah. they're, they're trying to get parents to... At least follow the bare minimum. Because uh, I think what, you know, what a lot of times what happens is the technology of car seats innovates faster than the law can adapt. So sometimes what happens is when the law was written, forward-facing car seats maybe only went up to four years and 40 pounds. So the law was reflecting that. And then, you know, after a child was in their car seat up to four years and 40 pounds, there was nothing in the law for after that. There was no quote, quote, booster seat law, which a little detail there is, um, there is still no booster seat laws in most states. The law don't even the laws don't even say anything about booster seats. Correct. It's it's a child restraint system that is regulated or meets federal motor vehicle safety standards. So, you know, at Safe Ride for Kids, we are big advocates for the Ride Safer Travel Vest, which is a seatbelt positioning device, but it's not technically a booster seat which is also a seatbelt positioning device. 
It's just that the booster seat works by lifting the child up so that the adult seatbelt contacts their body more appropriately. The Ride Safer Travel Vest brings the seatbelt down to the child and holds it in place with clips, um, but it doesn't boost the child. So there are two different ways of achieving seatbelt positioning, which is the stage after five-point harness forward facing. So it's a thing where, you know, technology and innovation, uh, the laws have a hard time keeping up. And when the laws try to be overly specific, trying to move behavior towards protecting the kids, they sometimes <laughs> miss the mark, <laughs> miss the mark and, and make it more challenging. So, you know, I've never heard of a case where somebody was issued a citation for uh, violating the letter of the law that actually, you know, they were following best practice. For example, in this case, having a four or five-year-old forward-facing in a five-point harness, even though the law says they have to be in a booster seat, the five-point harness offers more points of contact, uh, more surface area for that crash energy to be spread about. So the child's technically probably safer in the five-point harness up to a certain point. I've never heard of a case where that, where the, a parent or a caregiver was prosecuted effect, uh, and won the prosecution against them for breaking that law. I don't think that's ever happened. I think the, the court system would always... Uh, should always default to the intent of the law, which is to keep the children safe. Keep them properly restrained. Yeah. And that would still be considered properly restrained. And I think most um, police officers that we've spoken with, they wouldn't give a ticket um, as long as the child is in a restraint. They don't typically check dates of manufacture to make sure the seat's still um, within the expiration date. And they don't check the age and weight of a child to make sure that they're in the proper car seat. They don't they, carry a scale in their <laughs> patrol car. <laughs> they're just looking at the children and making sure that they are restrained in a car seat or a booster seat or something that seems like appropriate for what they can view visually how From the, the child looks. <laughs> you know, and that, that brings up another interesting point that, you know, first of all, most police officers are not certified technicians. There are some who are. Um, you know, just like uh, an agency might have certain officers who are who specialize in, um, you know, drunk driving uh, citation and are kind of the experts on that. I remember the agency that we worked with here in Colorado had certain officers who were very uh, passionate about uh, alcohol-related dri driving infractions and. You know, you may have a couple of officers on a department who are very passionate about the car seat stuff. But across the nation, most most law enforcement officers are not certified child passenger safety technicians. So they can look in the window and see, you know, is the kid in a car seat or not? And what they're looking for is they're trying to, um, the ones that I've talked to, um, you know, they just want to see that the kids are not bouncing around the car unrestrained they want to make sure that they're restrained to some level <laughs> and keeping that the parents are not putting their child at undue risk um 
so what do you think is, you know, what are some of the other ways that the state law can affect a, a driver, a, a caregiver? Um, I guess one way is that some state laws, and I do not have this listed on our law page. Um, no, I forgot to tease you guys. <laughs> um, but we, um, some states can pull you over just for a car seat infraction, and other states, uh, they are need to pull you over for something else, and then they can give you a car seat citation if they see something wrong. So um, get to know the law in your state and you know whether or not they can pull you over just for that. And um, just as a side note, uh, whether some states vary on uh, taxis and whether or not uh, the, the law requires the use of child restraints and taxis, and then there's also some states draw difference. We, we do have that listed on our That website. is, if you go to... Um, a short code for you to go to that's easy to remember is sr4k.com forward slash laws, L-A-W-S, sr4k.com forward slash laws. The sr4k is short for safe ride for kids. Um, so yeah, so again, Ubers and Uber and Lyft or the rideshare um, are not always considered taxis. Sometimes they're considered just a passenger car and all of the car seat laws apply. In other states, they're treated as taxis and are exempt from the car seat laws. In other states, both taxis and rideshare are not exempt from the car seat laws. So you need to make sure um, that you're compliant with the, at the minimum the law. And as I always tell people, I'm like, you know, they'll, they'll maybe they're going on vacation or they want to find out what the laws are at their vacation destination state or country. And I say, you know, at the end of the day, the laws of physics don't change when you cross jurisdictional boundaries. Or when you're just in a taxi. <laughs> or when it you're in a taxi. Change. <laughs> the laws of physics don't change. So, you know, as a good parent, as a good caregiver, let's do what we need to do to keep you safe, keep your kids safe. And then you'll always be compliant. So that's why we always say, if you practice best practice, then you will be exceeding, meeting or exceeding the law in every state. So when we talk about best practice, what what are those? What are the highlights of best practice? So let's say rear facing. What what's best practice rear facing? Um, best practice rear facing. Oh, and this is interesting also. Um, We've always said to keep your child rear-facing for as long as possible, and at least until age two. Um, in, I think it was 2011, the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics finally said until age two, and so state laws started changing their laws to age two. And now the American Academy of Pediatrics is saying to keep your child rear-facing for as long as possible. So far, no state laws have changed to that. Um, but that is best practice to keep your child rear facing for as long as possible. That means that if you're using a convertible seat, some of those go rear facing up to 40, 55 pounds. Some of them are quite large now. Yeah. 
And then, so basically you want to just make sure that your child is in within the height and the weight limit for the car seat that you're using. Uh, and then, you know, one of the objections that we commonly hear from parents about wanting to turn their child forward facing is the children's feet end up, you know, touching the back seat or pushing on the back seat. And they're afraid their leg is going to be broken. So just keep in mind that, you know, most crashes are a forward impact. So if you think about if the child is rear facing and the most common crash is a forward impact, that child's legs are going to be flying forward, you know, towards the front of the car. Uh, essentially, their ankles are going to be up around their ears if you were actually videotaping the car crash. Um, they're very flexible <laughs> and uh, their legs, there's never been a documented case of a child experiencing a leg, leg injury from being rear facing. Whereas on the other hand, forward facing, there are leg injuries from hitting the front seat in front of them. The seat in front of them and the, the side of the car and things like that. So um, that is, while I understand it as a concern, it is not a legitimate um, fear uh, and it is certainly not a legitimate reason to turn your child forward facing. Um, a brief note on that is the reason that rear facing is the preferred method the, that we want to keep kids rear facing as long as possible is what we're really trying to protect is the central nervous system through the head, neck, and spine. Um, when a child is rear facing in that forward facing are in that forward car crash, which is the most common, the child's head, neck, and back are all supported by the shell of the seat. So we don't get any hyperextension of the neck. As soon as we turn that child forward facing in the five-point harness, the harness is restraining the shoulders and the body, but the head and neck are unrestrained. So then all of the crash energy that is required to restrain the head which in children is already disproportionately large, all of that restraining force is transferred to the neck and the vertebrae in the neck and the ligaments that hold the vertebrae together. So what we're trying to achieve by keeping kids rear-facing as long as possible is giving the vertebrae as much time as possible to get as strong as possible so that the vertebrae and the ligaments can hold the head in that forward-facing crash. And the problem is, is that when, when that fails, when those ligaments, what actually happens is the ligaments pull out of the vertebrae, we get an extension of the spinal column, which, as you can imagine, is not a good outcome. Um, it actually only takes a very short stretch of the, of the spinal column, or not... Yeah, the spinal cord itself. Um, you know, I've, we teach about a quarter of an inch of stretch before there's permanent injury to the nerves of the spinal cord. So if you think, think about that, it's much safer to keep the kids rear-facing so that their head, neck, and spine are supported by the car seat as opposed to turning them around early. Right, so some car seats will allow you to keep your child rear-facing three, four, sometimes even five years old. Of course, it depends on your child depends and how the fast kid. they're growing, how big they are. 
Um, so the ne- next stage uh, is forward-facing, and they can stay in that stage until they outgrow the forward-facing car seat. Um, so that could be five, six, seven years old, depending on the child So and the car seat. Um, then the next stage is that seatbelt positioning stage. And what we're trying to achieve there is we're using the vehicle seatbelt system to restrain the child, and we're trying to improve the positioning of that on the child's body. So what a booster seat and what the ride safer vest is trying to do is keep the shoulder belt mid-chest, mid-shoulder, and keep the lap portion of the seatbelt low on the hips. And, you know, for a lot of these, it's actually sitting on the top of the thighs. And the reason that we want it that low is, you know, going horizontally flat across the child's legs is they don't really have hip bones the way that you and I do. They don't have that big notch in the hip bones. So we're just trying to make sure that we get good contact with as much of the hip bone as we can during the crash. And we want to keep the child in a belt positioning device until they can pass the five-step test. And for most kids, that's somewhere between 9 and 12 years old. Typically, it's uh, when they're four foot nine. Um, they will fit the adult seatbelt, but that, again, varies on the child and where they're carrying their height and the vehicle itself and the size it's, of the it's seat. particular seating position that the child is in because it can vary by vehicle right. and seating position. And sitting position. Like we have a, we have a three-row vehicle, so the third row, the seat is much smaller and the floor is much higher. So the child might appropriately fit the seatbelt much earlier in the third row as opposed to the second row. Right. Um, so when you say the five-step test, what are those five things that they're looking at? We're looking at how the seat belt fits on the child. So we want the shoulder belt crossing between the shoulder and the neck. We want the lower back against the vehicle seat. We want the butt right at the vehicle seat. Um, we want the lap belt on the thighs, as Greg was saying, um, for seat belt positioning. We want the knees to bend at the edge of the seat. Um, if the knees are not at the edge of the seat, then t- children will tend to scoot their butt forward um, from the back of the seat so that their knees bend comfortably and then they're not properly positioned. So the knees bend at the edge of the seat. And number five, the children can ride like this for the whole trip. You know, and that's an important thing. Um, You may be in a situation where uh, the kid is um, not able to ride properly positioned for the whole trip you know maybe they get fidgety or whatever so part of that part of being properly positioned is behavior so if you're going on a long trip or um, things like that you might need to take that into consideration as to what types of restraint you're going to be using um, or seatbelt positioning device and stuff you're going to be using for your kid so the last thing that we kind of want to talk about is what is if we're, we're talking about child restraints for kids after they're born. Um, what is considered best practice for using the seatbelt while you're pregnant? Well, according to NHTSA, best practice is to have the seatbelt uh, mid-chest, mid-shoulder for the, for shoulder, the shoulder belt, belt. and your lap as low as possible underneath the pregnancy. Um, technically speaking, according to some safety experts, there is no underneath the pregnancy. 
the pregnancy is down into the pelvic area, so you can't get below that with the seatbelt because the seatbelt is contacting the pelvic bones. Right. So if you think about the design of the lap portion of the seatbelt, its intention is to contact both your left and your right hip bone during the crash, right? So if the baby is in that, if the pregnancy, the uterus is protruding in front of the hip bones, if the baby's head is down in the birth canal later in pregnancy or really at any time, um, it's right in the path of that seatbelt, and that's a problem. Uh, so at Safe Ride for Kids, we are huge advocates and promoters of one product in particular called the Tummy Shield, which of all the products that are on the market, and the market is getting flooded with cheap, we'll call them knockoffs, um, but other products that are trying to claim that they do the same thing as the Tummy Shield, but they don't. Uh, they're, they're just not engineered or crash tested to do what the Tummy Shield does. But what the Tummy Shield does is it creates an anchor point between the legs. For the lap portion of the seatbelt to slip to slip into. So if you picture the seatbelt, instead of going from hip to hip, comes up from one anchor point, let's say where you buckled your seatbelt in, over your leg, down to the seat in the middle between your legs, and then up and over, over the other thigh, and then back to the vehicle's anchor point. So we've actually created kind of similar to a five-point harness in a, a child. race car driver. Yeah, kind of a race car driver type configuration. Um, but what separates the tummy shield from every other product is that what's anchoring the seatbelt in between the legs is a single-piece cast stainless steel plate and hook assembly. And that's what's molded into the foam cushion that you see in the images. Well, in addition to the strength um, of the materials that the Tummy Shield uses, um, the other difference between it and the other products are that the Tummy Shield puts the anchor right at the crotch where it should be. As close to the body as possible. Yeah, close to the body. And the other ones are way out in the front of the seat. So your seatbelt, you're actually moving the seatbelt six inches in front of you. I measured. There's pictures on our website. Um, At least six inches in front of you and anchoring it in there, which means that if there is a crash, you're moving those six inches until the seatbelt catches you. And then... Whether the device is able to hold the seatbelt or not is totally unknown at this point. And if it were to fail, now we're introducing another six to eight inches of uh, slack into the system, so the occupant is gonna move that much further forward. Now, if you're the driver, That means you're already slamming into the steering wheel and continuing to slam further and further into that forward, whatever's in front of you. So it's, um, we're very emphatic about that. And, um, there is a quote from, uh, somebody who's done a lot of studying in this topic, a a doctor by the name of Hank Weiss. And he, The quote that we pulled from his uh, studies, from his paper, is that the major role that motor vehicle injuries have on reported traumatic fetal injury deaths was shown. 
and a significant new challenge for child passenger safety advocates is indicated. So what he's saying is that as safety advocates, the safety advocate industry, we really do need to be looking at pregnancy and uh, protecting the baby during that stage of development. So um, with that, what is our safety tip today? Our safety tip today is that everyone in the car should buckle up for every drive. That is a huge deal. Um, like I said earlier, and, and Amy pointed out, you know, at least 35% of people who are fatally injured in car crashes aren't wearing their seatbelt. And we've actually heard uh, brave women who've been honest with us um, that their pregnancy is so uncomfortable that they knowingly choose to not wear their seatbelt as opposed to wear the seatbelt and deal with the discomfort. So we believe the tummy shield does two things. A, it will increase seatbelt use in the pregnant population because it makes it so much more comfortable and we're going to reduce fetal injury, fetal uh, fatalities, uh, resulting in miscarriages by removing the seatbelt from negatively impacting the pregnancy in a car crash. So everybody, including pregnant mamas, need to be wearing their seatbelt. And remember that uh, as your children grow up, they're going to do what you do. So if you're wearing your seatbelt every time, they will wear their seatbelt every time. Which brings us into our parenting tip of the week. Which is, you know, as they say, monkey see, monkey do. Our children are watching us. You know, Amy and I have three kids, and uh, there's nothing more humbling than having your children correct you (laughs) from the things that you're trying to get them to do. Um, They learn more from us uh, by watching us than by listening to what we tell them to do. And what we really want as parents is we want there to be congruency between what we're asking them to do and what we're doing and what we're modeling. And if you see some behavior in them that you don't like, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and determine where what they're that, mirroring back at you. <laughs> where did it come from? <laughs> and, um, you know, it's not always our fault, but um, it's always best to start with making sure that we are setting the best example, including in the car, uh, with how we drive, what we do while we drive, and uh, making sure that we're properly wearing our seatbelt every time. So with that, thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you, hear you, talk to you on the next podcast. Um, Just to remind you again, you can get a list of every state's car seat law on our website. Again, sr4k.com forward slash laws. Thanks. Have a great week.